0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. My name is Sue Peshin, and I am the president and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm going to start off today's episode by saying something that shouldn't be controversial in the least. Age or disability should not impact the value of a human life. It sounds pretty straightforward, right? It shouldn't even be something that we have to talk about. But unfortunately, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, also known as ICER, is an organization that produces recommendations on how much new drugs should base their costs on these same considerations, age, or possible disability. It's time for patients to say enough is enough, here at the Alliance, we believe in the power of patient advocacy and we're proud to stand against this discrimination in healthcare. Thankfully, we're not alone. We have a lot of good fighters beside us and leading the way in our desire to help patients to get the best care possible. Organizations like Patients Rising are doing incredible work to empower patients and to fight. Against discriminatory healthcare rationing. And here with me today to talk about this is Terry Wilcox, the Executive Director of Patients Rising. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sue. I really um, am glad to be here.
0: Great. Well, could you please explain for our listeners the mission of Patients Rising?
1: The mission of Patients Rising is to provide education, resources, and advocacy for people living with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. Our vision is a world where all patients have transparent, affordable access to the treatments and services they need when they need them. It's very
0: simple, <laughs>
1: but that's, that's, that's our lane. That's where we stay.
0: That's great. Well, simple, simple is good. It's understandable, and it's clear. So, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a patient advocate.
1: It's a real, you know, in life, there is a lot of, sometimes you get to a place and you never said, I want to be in that place. And it's funny, when I graduated from college, which was a long time ago, I went to school at the Boston Conservatory and I majored in musical theater, which has nothing to do with anything I do today. And I was like, the girl with the plan. In fact, one of my best friends was always like, oh, you know exactly what you're doing next. And, you know, <laughs> so the fact that I just like totally took a nosedive in another direction, um, you know, in my mid thirties, um, it's kind of what got me into advocacy. I was working in entertainment. I was living in LA. I'd met my husband. I wasn't married yet. And um, I got really into producing and storytelling as, as part of, my career and what I was doing. I was segment producing for a game show network or for a video game network of all things, which was just crazy. Cause my extent of video games is really like Pac-Man. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I, Atari, like, you know, <laughs> like I was not, I was not equipped for, you know, call of duty and all of these crazy games, but I did meet a lot of geeks and a lot of people in the tech industry and learned a lot during that period. Mm, but when I when I decided to start my own production company because I love segment producing and my dad at the time ran a cancer clinic in Denver, and he said to me, um, "You should really, you know, start telling some of these patient stories. They're really amazing patients. You know, this is we have these tablets in our in our waiting rooms, and they're trying to fill them with more content, and we need this kind of interesting health storytelling." And I was like, "Oh, okay," and I went and I made a big presentation to, of all people, it was to Ted Ocon. (laughs) I flew to Memphis. My dad knew Ted through other sorts of, you know, work that they were doing at the time. I think, I think the tablets that my dad was talking about were actually in, um, you know, with a company that Ted worked with in in Memphis. And that was, I I pitched a series called understanding cancer. We really wanted to get it um, on air we went all over i went my my husband and my crew we went all over memphis and arkansas and tennessee and colorado and just did tons of interviews i made almost a hundred videos and various stories and we even produced a couple of episodes nobody bought into the fact that cancer would make good television they didn't think it was very uplifting but we did end up um doing a great deal with those stories and i learned a lot and i fell in love with patience. and I fell in love with advocacy at that point. And then I went back to Colorado. The the uh, famous crash happened right before um, President Obama was inaugurated um, at the end of Bush's term, and sort of everything you know was, went topsy turvy for a little while, and we sort of lost our funding for that particular project. But I was still determined to continue in the advocacy space, and um, I met my mentor at that point through a weird set of circumstances. Um, I was converting to Judaism and her father was the rabbi at the or he was formerly the rabbi, he had passed away at the temple down the street that I was walking to and my rabbi who was training me said, Do you know Selma Schimmel? And I was like, No. Um, I've seen her speak at some of the um high holiday services or whatever. He's like, You have to meet Selma. I walked in about a couple weeks later, I met Selma and I was working for Vital Options within a couple of months, and I worked with Selma as my mentor for seven years in the cancer space. That's where most of my advocacy took place, and um, I traveled all over the world with her, literally, um, interviewed um, oncology key opinion leaders in many countries. Um, we were active in ESMO and ASCO, and, and cancer used to be on sort of my main track. Um, Selma, unfortunately, passed away um, at the end of Earth. in in 2014, my twins were born on her birthday, um, September 16th, 2013. She passed away. Yeah, I know she loved that. She was always like, it's fair share. She was like, she was in the hospital actually when they were born and so to be able to call her, um, it was really a beautiful thing. And she loved that. Um, she spent Thanksgiving with them that year. And we had a, I talk about her all the time to the boys, but she unfortunately lost her battle, um, with ovarian cancer, uh, in May of 2014. And I was like, I'm not taking over Vital Options. I'm not taking over Vital Options. And <laughs> sure enough, there wasn't really anyone to step step up to the plate um, at that time. And so I did. I ran Vital Options for about a year. And during that time, we were trying to figure out what to do because Selma hadn't really left Vital Options in a condition to like, live on after her in the sense that it wasn't really financially sound, et cetera, all of these things that often happen. Um, with smaller organizations and we got into the policy space and loved it. And after about a year or so, it turns out vital options the board and those folks didn't really want to um, do policy. And, and my husband and I, and specifically me, my husband's really not no longer working with the organization. He's on the board, but that's about it. Um, Got into the policy space and that's where I really felt the ability to be able to make change. And I fell in love with policy advocacy at that point, and I didn't know a lot. I know I sound like I know a lot more now, and because I do, I'm I'm incredibly passionate about it, and I study it and I read it, and I'm constantly wrong about things. But I but I do try to go and figure out, you know, where you know I do try to find mentors and those that know more than me to um, to learn from. And it's been an incredible journey, and and policy and policy and advocates. Um, themselves and patient stories and teaching patients. That's one of the main things I love, is teaching patients how to use their story in a proactive way to make change. I'm sorry. I think I probably babbled way more than you wanted to hear about my
0: no, advocacy no, that journey. Was, yeah, no, that was perfect and really interesting to hear about how you kind of came around and how you learned. And I think we all have people that helped us along the way. Uh, one of the things I really admire about you and about Patients Rising is the advocacy that you all have done against quality adjusted life years or QALYs, which sounds like really boring kind of esoteric thing. So tell our listeners, first of all, what are QALYs? Why is it important to advocate on them? And what's the impact for patients and older adults in particular?
1: Well, a a quality-adjusted life year, as you um, have pointed out, it's a methodology that essentially places a price tag on the value of living a full year of life in perfect health. Now, drugs or treatments that do not offer a full year of life or offer less than a full year of quality life um, are rated lower. And sometimes this can cause, if if insurers are looking at um, ICER, as you spoke of in your intro, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review's reports or things like that, they can use this methodology and these reports um, to not reimburse for certain medications or decide not to cover them. Um, and as you pointed out, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, it's a very Interesting journey. As I said here, you're like Terry, you graduated from Boston Conservatory and now you're advocating against qualities. Sort of how did you get there? And one of the interesting parts of our initial journey when we started Patients Rising was that my husband had done some work for John Arnold, who is a funder for the Institute of Clinical and Economic Review, his um, foundation. And he went, he had done some work with, on, on pensions in California with, with folks. And he read about this contribution to ICER, and my husband was greener than I was as far as health care policy, but he went to some of our funders at the time and said, are you worried about this, you know, John Arnold funding this institute in, you know, in in Boston? Um, Maybe we should engage here. And that's sort of how it started. Um, Our interest in that came from that. Um, And... We have been following ICER ever since. So we started uh, going to ICER meetings and engaging on ICER in 2016 with the multiple myeloma review, ironically enough, which is also coming up here in in April, um, another one for CAR-T therapy. And we have commented and followed ever since because one of the things that I said to folks at the time, I said, look, the next meeting was for a small liver drug. Um, and we didn't know anyone at the company being reviewed. And I looked at my husband, and I said, if we don't go engage on this every time, no matter who's funding us, we will look like shills for pharma. And I said, I don't want to do that. So it didn't really matter to us at the time um, who was funding us or or, or what. We were going to comment and engage and try to understand and follow. Um, And we have pretty much done done that through the trajectory. Um, now for over four years. Um, And ICER hasn't changed much. (laughs) I'll be honest. They they give a lot of lip service to, um, you know, having input to change their methodology, but they are stuck on this quality. And one of the things that your audience should know is that it's troubling. The quality is so troubling for the elderly and the disabled, because simply being either one or both of those automatically values you at less than one as the, in the eyes of the quality. It's inherently discriminatory because they can never achieve the highest quality.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I am not a health economist by background. My background's in public health, but I always thought it's so odd. You know, we get health insurance so that it will be there when we need it. And to think that when we need it, we're going to be sized up and penalized for actually making it to an older age or making it through with some type of chronic disease or disability. And, you know, they're, they're going to say that it's too expensive to treat us. What's the point of having insurance, right? So tell us a little bit more about What is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review? How have they gotten to be so powerful? How do they use qualies, And how have you kind of worked with patient groups to interact with them?
1: Well, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, ICER, is a Boston-based organization. They do independent reports, generally for, almost exclusively, actually, for new medications or new treatments being approved by the FDA um a lot of that has focused over the past several years obviously on some of the higher newer higher cost medications um CAR T therapies coming up on gene therapies and and other types of you know new newer treatments so it's newer treatments that they're generally reviewing um and they do this um they they'll pick a disease state and basically do this um They'll they'll do the report. They'll say, um, well, I can sort of tell you the whole trajectory. They'll announce they're doing the report, and then they have what's called an open input period. Now, during that open input period, um, anyone can comment to them, and basically the people, this is what I've, um, you know, sort of discovered after watching it several, for, for many years now, is that whoever comments during the open input period suddenly becomes the stakeholders, this part of the stakeholders list. Because I guess ISER figures if you've commented during this open input period, you're really invested in this disease state or these medications. Um so that sort of becomes the stakeholder list. We're never on a stakeholder list. We generally don't comment during that period. Um we don't comment during the on the disease specific really technical stuff. We feel like that we leave that more to the disease specific organizations. We feel like that's their lane. Um and patient groups, often patient groups will be put in that open input period. Because honestly, if you're reviewing Alzheimer's medications and you are an Alzheimer's organization of any size, you should comment during that open input period and become a stakeholder um, and engage with ICER. Now, I can't promise you that you're going to feel fulfilled at the end of it. <laughs> I just can't. Some company organizations work better than others. Um, but many have been disappointed in the process. As a matter of fact, that, uh, several years ago, during a lung cancer review, I called up one of my um, colleagues in the lung cancer space, and I said, you know, if you want any insight into to doing this, feel free to give me a call. We've been to a couple of meetings. We've kind of been around the block, and they were like, no, 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 we've got this. We've got our experts talking. And I was like, great. And then they had their first call with the experts in ICER. They called me back about a month later, and they said, oh my God, can I, can we go to lunch? Like, and the first thing out of their mouth at lunch was like, oh, it was such a horrible experience. They were so rude. Um, They dismissed our, uh, our concerns. I don't think it's quite, I think they've made a a conscious effort um, to not have quite that experience anymore for patient groups. And they've tried to partner. I'm not exactly sure that even then the partnership is rewarding. I still don't know that when you're using quality, as we're pointing out here, it's inherently discriminatory, and it's inherently not taking the patient perspective into it. And until we as a country are looking at all of our healthcare systems, and I refuse to call the United States a healthcare system, (laughs) I I flat refuse to use that term because we're many systems. But until we're all designing benefits that take into consideration the value of patients and what patient value is, mm-hmm. then what are we doing?
0: Right.
1: What, 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 are, we, what, what are we doing? We're, we're just, you know, it's arbitrary. And just the fact that now if you go, I'm kind of a geek. So now if you go to ICER's <laughs> website, you can register for something called ICER Analytics, which allows you to sort of put your own inputs in and fiddle with their methodology. And I'm like, if you can fiddle with your methodology, what are we doing? You can make it whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're going to fiddle with it, like, why are we even using it?
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's all kind of like putting a thumb on the scale, right? We're going to try to make it seem a little bit more fair and however much you press down. And you can't necessarily replicate it after you try to do that. Uh, or explain how you ended up, you know, how much pressure you put. Um, But, you know, you can do it, and then we can sort of justify that it was fairer than it really was. So how can listeners, if they're interested, get involved and advocate uh, for a ban on qualies or to raise awareness about any of this?
1: Well, there's a couple. There's any of listeners who are based in Connecticut right now. There is a quality ban um, bill that's uh, percolating in the state. That would be fantastic for folks in that region to get behind. And you can always reach out to um, me at uh, at org, And, you know, I can give you more information on that. We we also... um, one of the things that we do at Patients Rising is we just started a patient rising um advocacy Masterclass where we train um patient advocates, not just on one issue, but we train them for 14 weeks. And right now we're training eighty advocates across thirty states. Wow. And we're training you on everything from quality to um to what ICER is, to what value frameworks are in general to D U R and P and T boards. To MACPAC, we just added. <laughs> so we've got many things that we try to work in and train um, these advocates because we are of the belief that patient stories and patients themselves are the sea change for how we bring patient value to healthcare. And it's not just you and it's not just Sue and Terry and all the other advocates, you know, in DC and around the country. It's really about those patients that are living this in a in a daily experience across many disease states, um, and we have many ways to get involved with that. The first state, ironically enough, in the country to pass um, a quality ban was Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I know there's been some talk of a QALY ban in Texas. I am from Texas originally, so I was somewhat, I'm like, Texas, get on with it. I mean, Oklahoma beat us.
0: it's a pride thing now right it's a pride
1: thing at this point I'm like come on come on let's let's move that um bill so there's many ways to I know there's a lot of other states um that will be um coming up with these with these bills I know there's a big push for it this has been an interesting as you probably know uh advocacy year (laughs) um around the country having come out of COVID but. it is a huge issue. it's something that we really do want to push um there's a there's a drug pricing review board um, that's trying that's being pushed in Colorado. The governor's really pushing for it, and I'm not going to go into the to the gritty details of that, but one of the things that we did manage or not we but advocates and uh, folks did manage to get put into that particular bill, which we're certain some form of it will pass is a quality ban so there are ways. To get, you know, if they are creating things that sound scary like drug pricing regime boards, to perhaps, you know, make changes within things that are happening. So that's kind of other things that another thing you sort of have to look out for. And it may not just be a quality ban, but it may be something within a bill that can make it less discriminatory, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. That's great. Well, we will definitely uh, let our listeners know about your. email address, how to get in touch. Uh, We also oftentimes pick up alerts from your group and other groups on our icerfacts.org website, so people can also check things out that way. Uh, But we we keep up because we hear from, from groups like Patients Rising, so folks need to tune in. All right, so I'm going to switch gears uh, here a bit to ask you a question that we ask everybody who comes on our show. When you were a kid, what did you imagine growing older would be like?
1: (laughs) Well, um, my grandmother was, um, you know, on a tractor at like 75 years old plowing fields, and she lived on 500 acres in the Ozarks and literally had to carry her up the hills. And when I was a kid, that was my happy place. Was that farm in Arkansas? And I actually imagined that that's how I would grow old that I would wear a pink cowboy hat and ride a bush hog and drive it around and cut hay. Now, unfortunately, my grandmother passed away in 2011, and um, the farm is no longer part of the family. So I'll have to find a new farm um, and a new bush hog. But um, I did really love that. And so that's always sort of how I imagined getting old that it would be like my crazy grandmother, Um, and I would live in the middle of nowhere. you know, sing old hymns, which is kind of what she did.
0: Awesome. And what about the pink cowboy hat?
1: The pink cowboy hat does still exist.
0: So that does still okay. exist. Very cool. Because it's all, you know, you get the look, then you get the attitude, right? Exactly. So what do you enjoy most about growing older now?
1: Oh, so many things. You know, I had kids really late in life. I was 44 when I had a twin boys and uh I'm just over 50 now and the one thing that I'll say is I really um felt like my genes fit actually for the first time I've always felt like a really old soul so now I just you know I, I sort of feel like I'm I'm kind of in my own at you know in a, in a good place and that uh I don't I'm not as concerned about what other people think um I'm a better mother than a, God, I, I can't even imagine myself being a mother at like 30. I was a mess. <laughs> I'm like a much calmer, better human at this age. And I feel like I finally fit my, you know, fit my whole whole, whole genome <laughs> that I was born with.
0: That's great. I love it. That That's nice. That's good to hear. Um, I think a lot of people who work in these types of uh, topics have the old soul quality. And uh, it's the first time we've heard somebody say, I finally feel like I fit. Um, So that's, that's wonderful to hear. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Sue. And thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. You're welcome so everyone we hope you enjoyed today's conversation and we encourage you to visit icerfacts.org to learn more about how you can get involved on our end and Patients rising for how you can get involved with them and you should sign up for everything and to receive news updates on icers activity and opportunities to connect with elected officials Please stay tuned for new episodes of This Is Growing Old every other Wednesday. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to This Is Growing Old and have a great day.